Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? It's your boy, Patrick Padza, and I'm here with another episode of the Pat Padge Body Shot Podcast, my MMA podcast. And over the weekend, we had UFC 246, and it was the return of Conor McGregor, Mystic Mac, came back and he knocked out Don Cerrone in less than one minute. I really like Conor McGregor, and I was really happy for him to come back and put on a performance like that. And just like that, in classic Conor fashion, his name is being thrown in with a lot of the bigger names in MMA, like Jorge Masvidal, Khabib, Nate Diaz, Kamaru Usman, Justin Gaethje. And to be honest, I would love any of those fights. But what I wanted to do, before we get to the McGregor versus Cerrone fight and the implications of that match, I wanted to go through the rest of the UFC 246 card. Now, I watched every single fight except for the Macy Barber and Roxanne Mataferi fight. Which is unfortunate because I heard that it was a really, really good matchup. And it was always great to hear, you know, Ro- Roxanne Mataferi. A lot of people were call- were counting her out against Macy Barber, who's kind of, you know, the young upstart who's everybody was saying was going to be the next strawweight or fly, sorry, flyweight champion at the women's division, which was nice to see Mataferi pull up the upset. But starting with the card, we have J.J. Aldridge versus Sabino Mazo. J.J. Aldridge, she's southpaw facing the taller uh, Sabino Mazo. And so in the first round, what we had was Sabino is looking for the step-up left kick to the body. But what J.J. was doing was circling a lot to her left and getting Sabino to follow. And then when she had Sabino following her, she would then step out to the outside of the lead leg of Sabina and land her own left straight. Now, usually if you're a southpaw, you want to be circling to your right because what that does is that gets your lead foot on the outside of your opponent's lead foot, so the orthodox fighter's left foot. And what this does is that it makes it a lot easier for your left hand to land. It lines it up to the center line, making it the shortest distance for it that it has to travel. But what J.J. Aldridge was doing in the first round especially was that she would circle to her left and as she got J or sorry, uh, what J.J. Aldridge would do, she would circle to her left, get Sabina to follow her, and once she had her mind, and then once J.J. felt like Sabina was focused a lot on following her, then she would step out to, step out her right leg to lead, she would step out her foot to the lead leg, she would step her lead foot on the outside of Mazo's lead leg and catch her with the left straight. And that was basically what was happening in the first round. JJ just circling to the left and Sabina Mazo just following her. In round two, Sabina came out a little bit more aggressive and she was catching JJ with a couple of combinations. And she also found a lot of success in the clinch. She was grabbing the clinch and hitting nice knees and elbows, a couple of uh, elbows, but a lot of knees in the clinch. And then in round three, we had Sabina mostly grabbing the tie clinch and working the knees to the body and the head. And again, a couple more elbows. And she kept on using that step-up left left kick. Now, the thing with the step-up left kick is that it's a great weapon to use against the softball because it naturally puts your, puts your lead foot on the outside of your opponent's lead foot. But she didn't really do anything else with that left kick. She would just throw it up and she didn't get too much snap or power on that kick. So it really looked like it just gave J.J. Aldridge the chance to step in on Sabina and catch her with a punch as she was on one leg and one thing that I noticed was that Sabina she had JJ Aldridge up against the fence as she was working the clinch and the ref came and broke it up and Sabina who has been chasing Aldridge this whole fight 
turns around and walks to the center of the ring, turns around again to face Aldridge, and then lets the ref reset the fight. The thing is, is that she gave Aldridge so much room, and the problem that she was having was that Aldridge kept on circling away from her freely in the cage. So why she would walk away, create a bunch of space for Aldridge to start circling through again is beyond me. If you're on the fence and you're clinching with somebody and then the ref breaks up the clinch, you should be standing your ground and making sure that you, the ref takes away the least amount of space from between you and your opponent. So it's easier for you to get back into the clinch or get back into your opponent's face to put them back on the cage. So Mazo ends up winning by split decision. Um, I thought Aldridge won that fight, but it's whatever. It wasn't that crazy of a fight and wasn't that important in my eyes. Then we had Alexa Camor versus Justin Leddit. Uh Camor coming in, making his UFC debut. You know, looks like a really athletic young guy, but he's fighting Justin Ledet, who's kind of a UFC veteran. The only I, This is my second time watching Ledet, and the first time I watched him, he got knocked out by Johnny Walker. You know, it's funny because during the fight, Joe Rogan, he tries to say something along the lines of Justin Ledet being a veteran in the octagon. And he's like, yeah, he's been against... Uh, high-level competition, such as Johnny Walker, who, if I remember correctly, let me see here. Yeah, he knocked out Justin Ledet in 15 seconds of a head kick. So Joe Rogan is trying to make a case for Justin Ledet, saying that he's been in there with very tough competition, but the tough competition that he was in there with knocked him out in 15 seconds. Anyways, in round one, Alexa is throwing a lot of kicks but not having too much effectiveness with them where Justin is constantly catching Alexa coming forward with the left hand like the jab or hook. It was mostly the left hook that Justin was catching Alexa with and Alexa was just the spamming high kicks and spinning kicks and he wasn't really getting that much done with them. So round two it's funny because so round two starts and in between round one and two Alexa's corner tells him that he should stop throwing up so many head kicks and start throwing more low kicks. But what he does is that as soon as he steps out to meet Ledette in the middle of the in the middle of the octagon, right away fills up a head kick and then a wheel kick. Of course, not effective at all. And the thing is, is that if you're gonna throw a wheel kick or something like that, you gotta do one of two things. One is that you have to be cutting off the cage on your opponent, so they're circling right into the head kick. Because landing a spinning kick or a wheel kick is really difficult out in the open because all the opponent has to do is take a step back and then you're out of position after you throw that wheel kick. So what you got to do is either play with expectations and get your opponent to circle. If you're throwing your right wheel kick, you got you have to get your opponent to start circling to their right so they spin, they're walking right into the strike. Or you got to get them on the cage so they don't have anywhere to back up while you throw the kick so you have a better chance of actually landing it so he keeps on throwing these kicks out in the open where they're not that effective at all and Justin keeps on just taking a step back but then what he starts doing is that he starts rushing into the clinch and you know he starts landing a couple punches and knees out of the clinch and that's the best that Alexa actually looks in that round then round three starts and now Alexa is getting Justin to chase him so in the first two rounds, what Alexa was doing was that he was coming forward to Justin, trying to land these crazy kicks, but always getting caught with a left hook or a left jab. 
And so now he's taking his foot off the uh, off the gas and kind of backpedaling and letting Justin uh, letting Justin do the chasing. And he's getting off some nice leg kicks and uh, the occasional right straight to the body, which he darts off of, which is really nice. Eddie Alvarez used to do this thing where he would throw the right straight and then immediately run to his left, almost as and he'd use that as like a, a point scoring punch. And that's exactly what Alexa was doing here. And so he's letting Justin come to him, but. The couple times that he does go forward and try to attack Justin, he gets clipped by that left hook over and over. He manages to get the takedown in the last 20 seconds, and it looks like it secures in the round. And then two judges gave him the 30-27, which I thought was surprising because overall, I thought I honestly thought Ledet, I thought Justin Ledet won, won that fight. But overall, another prospect, well, like Alexa can't. Like Alexa Kammer, he came in to UFC as a prospect. He's 5-0, 6-0 now. But he looked, he didn't look like anything special. So, you know, overall, I'm still looking for that light heavyweight prospect that's going to give me hope in someone actually being able to challenge John Jones. Next on the card, we had Drew Dober versus Nazrat Hakparaz. And there's not much to say here. Hakparaz just threw a naked low kick and got caught by Dover's overhand right. It's always dangerous to throw a naked low kick because it's easy for an opponent just to step up into it, take the kick on their thigh, and then hit you with their power hand. Another thing is that because you're on one leg, it's really easy to knock you down as you throw that kick. But the tough part of this fight was watching the ref allow Hackparaz take so many unanswered shots after he got knocked down. It was pretty damn crazy to see him take, you know, actually like five, six shots right on the right on the face before the, the ref was able to step in that's pretty scary stuff to see next on the card we had tim elliott versus askar askarov and this was the first fight that i actually got excited for tim elliott uh you probably know had challenged demetrius johnson for the flyweight title back in the day and actually looked pretty decent in that fight and askar askarov he's a new uh, fighter in the ufc and he looked really crisp in this fight so round one we had tim elliott Comes out looking awkward as per usual. He's switching stances, looking for kicks, especially that low inline side kick to the lead knee whenever he's an orthodox. And Askarov, and Askarov is a natural softball, so that's a perfect weapon to use if the person is coming in on you. You can stop their forward moving, movement using that lead side kick to the knee, or you can uh, kind of poke and prop and annoy the opponent if they're the ones that are, if you're the one going forward. And Askarov's hands were not looking... Askarov's hands, not half bad. He was looking crisp of his boxing. Elias starts doing that thing after Askarov hits him a few times with some clean strikes that it's so annoying to see in MMA. What Elliot does is that he puts his hands down and starts beckoning Askarov to hit him. And it's so annoying to watch because even when Askarov does play along with it and he throws his hands and Elias slips the punches, he does nothing with it. He just slips them and he keeps asking Askarov to keep throwing. The whole thing is when you put your hands down and you tell your opponents to throw at you, that's supposed to open them up for the counter. And there's no point in just slipping the punches and not capitalizing on it. It looks cool for the first two punches, but after a while you realize that the person is slipping the punches and not doing anything, it's pretty lame and really there's no point to it. Because you're not if you're not scoring off those slips, why even do the slips? So finally, Elliot throws a low kick, a naked low kick, just like Naskarov, just like Hack Paras did in the fight just previously, and Askarov steps in and catches Elliot with a right hook that looks like it knocks him out. Again, this is the danger of not setting up your kicks and throwing them naked. 
a lot of fighters feel like they're safe throwing naked kicks because it's just such a long-range weapon. But if you're just throwing them recklessly, especially if you're not fast, the kick still has to travel over a long distance. There's a lot of time for your opponent to be able to step in and catch you with their own strikes. Even Edson Barbosa, who is probably one of the fastest kickers in the UFC, when he throws a naked kick, he can get stepped in on quite easily. And then Elliot ends up doing that typical thing that you see in like world star videos where you go stiff as a board and your knees lock up as if you're about to face plant. But he manages to recover and he shoots for a takedown and it causes a scramble, which ends up with Askarov and Elliot's half guard. And on the ground, a lot of El a lot of it is just Elliot stalling Askarov in his half guard and he's looking and Askarov is looking for the typical cross-face shoulder pressure uh, that you would apply in half guard when you're on top of half guard. But Elliot is reaching with his left arm across Askarov's back and hooking his own left leg to keep Askarov's posture down. He also did a decent job scrambling into the butterfly guard where he was throwing elbows at Askarov and looking for an arm crunch, which is where you reach up and you take the underhook on one arm of your opponent. You reach through and you connect to your other arm your non-hooking arm and you grip them together and what this does is create pressure on your opponent's shoulder and can easily turn into a razor arm lock or a sweep and uh, Marcelo Garcia one of the more famous jiu-jitsu players in jiu-jitsu had a lot of success using the shoulder crunch to threaten the submission or sweep people from his butterfly guard into full mount. Round two starts and Elliot comes out and immediately gets a nice judo throw, which is pretty always nice to see. And every time these guys start falling into the clinch and Elliot gets an underhook, he goes for that hip toss and goes straight into side control and immediately starts looking for the guillotine, which is a clever thing to do, especially if your opponent is looking to stand up immediately. A lot of times when you're on the bottom of side control and you roll to your knees to stand up, your arms are going to be posted on the ground. And so they're not... not they're not near your neck to defend from chokes and it leaves your neck exposed for something like the guillotine grip. Askarov though has a lot of success in the stand-up portion of the, uh, this round, just working simple ones and twos and catching Elliot a lot. And Askarov does a good job of, off his back as well. He, when, he, uh, when Elliot is in his guard, he keeps on switching between the armbar and the triangle, which makes it really difficult. If somebody is trying to submit you from the bottom and they're attacking, it's really hard to focus on defending from the submission and countering and then trying to get your own ground and pound going. There's just too much going on and it's really nice to see Askarov playing with those submissions. Then around three starts and Elliot starts walking Askarov down and doing that thing where he starts slipping the punches and not doing anything with it again. Askarov starts throwing the combinations. So Askarov stops throwing combinations and now he's only throwing single strikes out and that can mean either he, you know, he's well, throwing a to, uh, a jab or his left straight and that could mean one of two things one is that he's tired and he's trying to conserve energy throwing one strike at a time or two because he just spent so much time in the last round off his back on those takedowns that Elliot got on the clinch he didn't want to commit to any more major strikes and fall into the clinch again where he might give Elliot an easy takedown at one point Askarov takes the tie plumb uh, which is where you got both you have both your hands gripped around the back of your opponent's head and you're trying to crunch them down into the knees. And Elliot does the Diaz brother response, which is to straighten up his own back and start throwing about half a dozen body punches, which make, uh, makes Askarov let go of it. A lot of people think that the tie plumb is the most powerful position in the clinch, 
And the thing is, is that it's only effective if you're able to get your hips back and crunch the opponent's head down. The Diaz brothers had a lot of success dealing with the plum by just pushing forward, straightening their back, and ripping body shots. It's a perfect way of wearing down your opponent. In the last three minutes of the round, is Elliot trying to walk Askarov down to the fence, but doing it most, doing it in the most annoying possible way. Just walking Askarov down, slipping only like half the punches. Half the punches are still landing. And then mean mugging every time Askarov manages to circle off the fence. It's such a dumb thing to do. And you see a lot of fighters do this. I saw this in the Kyle Boschnak versus Zabi uh, fight. And the fighter who's slipping the punch, I don't know why they think they're winning the fight by just slipping these punches. But you actually have to do something with those slips. If an opponent throws and you slip the punch, you actually got to counter off it. The times Elliot actually has success is when he was kicking Askarov's leg to keep him in place or giving him body shots that kept him in place. And that way he was actually able to close the distance on Askarov and put him on the fence. He basically threw away that last round and the fight by trying to look cool slipping the punches when he could have just stayed with the leg kicks which were obviously hurting Askarov and the body punches were obviously bothering him and working more of that. But in the end it was a good performance from Askarov where his boxing looked sharp and Tim Elliott was ranked number 7 in flyweight, so Askarov is probably going to get like a top 5 fight next. And if he wins that, it'll line him up for the title shot for flyweight. Next on the card, we had Andre Philly versus Sodiq Yusuf. And from the get-go, so round 1 starts, and from the get-go, it's clear what Yusuf's plan is. is to slip inside of Philly's jab, so slip to his left, and hit him with the counter overhand right, or the cross counter, over the top of Philly's jab. And Philly... Uh, and Philly, for his <clears throat> Philly, on the other hand, has been working on his jab recently. And what Yusuf was doing was keeping his right hand out, ready to catch the jab and jab at the same time. And each time he catches Philly's Philly's jab and counter jabs, it really shakes up Philly. The catch and jab is a classic strategy when dealing with a good jabber. Famously, Muhammad Ali, who might have one of the most famous jabs of all time in boxing, had his jaw broken by one of his opponents, Ken Norton, because. Norton had figured out that every time Ali stepped in the jab, he could catch the jab and jab at the same time, and it really messed up Ali. Philly, however, does a good job of mixing it up from time to time, stepping in as, the, as if to throw a jab, but it throws a left hook instead, which catches Yusuf by surprise because the left hook whips around the right hand as Yusuf is trying to catch. Another thing that Philly has success with is shooting in for the takedowns because Yusuf's forward pressure has him walking, basically walking into takedowns. But Yusuf is so strong though. His stand-up, when he's put onto his back, all he does is turn away from, uh, from Philly and just post up on the ground and stand right back up, giving up his back, but being able to turn into Philly a lot of the times. At one point, Philly has the body lock and Yusuf manages to reverse the position and even take Philly down by using the Kimura grip. So that's a common strategy you'll see is that people will get body locked and what they'll do is that they'll grab a Kimura grip, something that Sakuraba, uh, if you, uh, so what they'll do is that somebody will grab the body body lock and what, what they'll do is that somebody grabs a body lock on you and then you work the Kimura grip and then it's easy to turn that Kimura, uh, break the body lock grip and turn into the Kimura and can lead to a submission, it can lead to a takedown. And here what Yusuf does is that he met, he reverses the body lock and manages to take Philly down off the Kimura grip. Round 2 starts and Yusuf manages to catch Philly with a counter kick as Philly goes for his own kick and chops him down on the standing leg. So Philly throws up a kick and then Yusuf throws his own kick on that stand, uh, the leg that 
Philly is standing up on and cuts him down and Philly falls over. Yusuf does this cool thing where he's in side control and he pushes the... So they go to the ground and Yusuf is working half guard and side control. And when Yusuf gets into side control, what he does is that he pushes off the cage with his legs. So Philly and him slide to the center of the octagon. And smart because what fighters can do is that they can place their feet on the fence and push off it. And a lot of times this causes a scramble or reverse because what this does is that it causes a scramble or you can even reverse a power position from side control because you have so much you can push off of uh, when you push your feet against the uh, fence if you're close enough to it. And so this uh, this round, a lot of it is just Yusuf and Philly's half guard and just working between half guard and side control and not really landing anything that's significant, but landing, you know, the occasional power shot and elbow and he's doing good work from the top. Then round three starts and Philly switches the southpaw uh, for this round, which catches Yusuf by surprise. So Philly starts this third. Uh, so Philly almost immediately switches into southpaw, and he catches Yusuf of a left straight as Yusuf throws again another naked low kick, which is kind of the theme for this card, I guess. And then the fight starts taking on a different dynamic because Philly is now the one walking Yusuf down, whereas in the first two rounds we had Yusuf walking down Philly, basically counter jabbing him every time that Philly tried to jab. And it looks like Yusuf was really struggling with Philly, Philly switching the southpaw. Yusuf is looking for the jab, but it's different. But it's a different dynamic now. Uh, Philly is doing a good job hand fighting because when you have a southpaw versus orthodox, what ends up happening is that their lead hands end up clashing with each other a lot. So it's hard to jab. Uh, it's hard for either fighter to really get their jab going. And he's countering, and Philly is doing a good job of countering the left straight every time Yusuf tries to jab. And it's interesting to see if Yusuf naturally struggles against southpaws or if he just doesn't, didn't expect Philly to switch in the southpaw. The thing is that it looks like a lot of Yusuf's plan was built around countering Philly's jab, but Philly, by changing the southpaw, changed the dynamic of the fight. Because now, instead of trying to catch a jab, which is, you know, it can be just an arm punch and it doesn't have that much power behind it or weight, they're trying to catch a full power left straight, which has a lot more power and weight behind it. And that's a lot scarier and a lot harder to actually catch. But in the end, Yusuf manages to get the win. And this should put... But in the end, Yusuf manages to get the win. And with the win over Andre Philly, who is you know, a very respectable opponent, it should put him in a position to uh, get a top 15 fight in his next opponent, which would be awesome to see. Then we had Roxanne Modafferi versus Macy Barber, which unfortunately I wasn't able to watch. And from what I heard, uh, what ended up happening was that Macy Barber really injured her leg pretty badly. She tore her ACL or something along those lines. But then immediately after, I saw on you know, Reddit and Instagram that a lot of people were saying that Barber doesn't have a chance of being the U youngest UFC champ anymore. But the women's flyweight division is so shallow that anybody in that division is only one or two fights away from winning that title. So I think uh, from being able to actually fight for that title. So I think Macy Barber still has a little bit of time to try to accomplish that goal. Then we move on to the main card and it starts off with Anthony Pettis versus Carlos Diego Ferreira. Anthony Pettis, as you know, he's been, ever since that RDA fight that he had, uh, losing the championship, he's always been on a little bit of a win-loss streak. I, I think, honestly, from that fight on, he's only he's only ever won a fight and then lost a fight. He's never been able to string two or more wins together, and he didn't ever string two losses together. But this is the first time that he's had two losses in a row. And Ferreira, he's a type of fighter that... There wasn't, you know, he he's kind of like in that Dustin Poirier 
RDA mold where when he first started he didn't look any he didn't look world class but now that he's now in the last couple in the last like year or so he's really changed up his style and now he's really looking like a top lightweight. So Ferrer comes out and immediately starts to look to pressure Pettis who to the fence who is just standing in the southpaw stance. And whenever you see Pettis in that southpaw stance, you know that left body kick is going to come and try to chop your liver up. And it looked like Farah and his team were prepared for this. And it's interesting to see, it's interesting because Farah, he started in an orthodox stance for literally like two seconds. But as soon as he sees that Pettis is in the southpaw, he also switches to the southpaw stance himself. And what this does is that it makes it a lot harder for Pettis to land that left body kick. Because now what it has to do when Pettis throws it is that it has to get past Ferrer's back and his arm is also in the way. And there's a lot more protecting Ferrer's liver on that side when he switches to southpaw. Not only that, but Ferreira, uh, what Ferrer starts doing is that he starts lifting his lead leg as if to get ready to ch catch and check the southpaw left kick. So what this does is that it helps Ferrer get in on Pettis so anytime that Pettis would throw the kick he can lift his leg and take the kick on his own leg or shin so it doesn't chop off his liver or start chopping down his leg it just gives him a little bit of a barrier to start working in on Pettis. The thing is is that every time he gets close enough to throw hands with Pettis or get close enough to grab onto Pettis because he's on that one leg, Pettis does a good job of just getting a quick combo off and circling off and then getting back into the center of the cage. What Ferrer does though is stick to him and throw a couple of his own body kicks and head kicks to stop Pettis from circling out freely and he actually manages to grab the clinch on Pettis and push him against the fence. Uh, from here, Ferrer works the typical AKA position where you take an underhook on one arm and you post your head underneath your opponent's chin and then you start hitting them and punching them with your free arm. And what he does is that he gets underneath Pettis' chin and stretches him out and starts hitting him with a free arm. And then he manages to switch to a body lock and get onto Pettis' back. And then he climbs on top of Pettis' back and drags him to the ground. And then Pettis, in classic Pettis fashion, manages to spin out of back control into Ferrer's guard as he pulls Ferrer's one arm across himself and manages to spin into the guard. Pettis is a master of escaping that back position and he does it to everyone. And it's not surprise it's no surprise that he was able to reverse it on Ferreira. But Ferreira manages to get uh get up and he manages to push into Pettis and get him to the ground again. And it looks like he's won round one. Then round two starts, and again, Ferreira starts walking Pettis down uh to the fence, and Pettis tries to kick him uh kick uh, again, Ferrer walks Pettis to the fence and Pettis tries to kick with his back against the fence, which is usually a no-no because it's hard to generate power off a kick when you have your back against the cage and it's super easy for your opponent just to step in on you and press you up against the cage. Uh, so Ferrer, he, uh, he gets Pettis to the cage, takes him down, and he does a good job of passing Pettis' guard and then taking the back. And he actually gets a pretty nice, like, uh, once he's on the back, he starts working the choke and he kind of gets this hybrid neck crank slash choke. And it gets Pettis to end up tapping out. Uh, so it was a great performance from Ferreira. He came in with the right idea, pressuring a strong kicker to the fence, roughing him up against the fence, and then working his own, uh, working his way to Pettis' back. His stand up didn't look pretty and it did get hit a couple of times, but it worked and that's all that really matters. As long as it works, it's good. And with that win, Ferreira is probably going to get a uh, top 10 lightweight fighter and Pettis, who, you know, now for the first time ever is on a two-fight losing streak. Who knows what he's going to be doing?
you know, people kind of have figured out the book on Pettis is that he has a very hard time dealing with pressure and it's such an obvious flaw. And the lightweight division is so stacked that nearly anybody who's a top level a type level a top level fighter in that division is going to try to exploit it. So it'll be interesting what he does next from here. Next fight we had Brian Kelleher versus Ode Osborne, and this is the first time I saw either fighter fight uh, in the UFC. But apparently Ode Osborne came in from the Contender Series and looked really good on that. And they come out and round one starts of Ode uh, Osborne coming out in that John Jones kind of crouch crawl across the floor. And he jumps up in the air and lands a nice right hook. And then right off the bat, you can see that Osborne has a clear speed advantage with his hands. But Kelleher, he gets the double and he has Osborne taken down against the fence. And then what Osborne tries to do is throw up a bunch of submissions. But the thing is that... If you're on your back against the fence, it's super hard to throw up submissions or try to sweep somebody because the fence stops you from being able to shrimp and create space. And the fence takes away a lot of what you're, uh, a lot of your leverage. If you're on your back against the fence, the first thing you should be looking to do is to wall, wall walk and get up on the cage so you can start working a clinch and getting some underhooks so you can work your way off the fence. So uh, what, end, what ended up happening is that Kelleher manages to grab the neck and he kind of gets like a semi-mounted arming guillotine, which sucks a lot, but doesn't have the same leverage as a regular guillotine. But what, ends up, what he ends up doing is that he falls to his back and he makes Ode Osborne tap with his foot, which is pretty impressive. Next, we had Alexei Olenek versus Maurice Green. And this was a nice, fun fight. I really like this one. First off, Green is huge he looked i mean all nick is a big guy he's like six foot two but maurice green looked made dwarfed him in size it was awesome to see and then right off the bat you can see just how old Olenek is because he swings and falls right over to the ground it kind of remember reminded me of dan henderson in his later years where he would commit so much to his right hand and because he wasn't uh you know because he was getting older he would throw himself off balance a lot of the times Olenek then gets the clinch off a miss kicked from green and green tries to go for a kimura grip but ends up on his back with Olenek but what ends up happening is that Olenek pulls him down and gets on top into side control. And then Olin makes, and then what Olin does is go for like that ch that face compression, chest compression submission where you're in side control and you have the scarf hold and you really squeeze really, really hard on your opponent's face. And it makes it, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, so Olenek drags him down and he gets on top of side control. And then Olenek is doing a really good job of kind of smothering his side control, making it uncomfortable, but ends up losing side control because what Maurice Green does is that he puts his feet on the cage and kicks off his super, super hard. And what ends up happening is that he goes straight into a triangle attempt, which was funny as hell. This imagine a huge ass monster of a man trying to throw up a triangle on you. He goes for the triangle again, but then the thing is that if you're attacking with submission off your back, it makes it hard for your opponent to get any ground and pound going. And that's exactly what happened. Maurice Green, because he's throwing up those triangles, made it really hard for Olenek to get any ground and pound. But Olenek, because he's so good at jiu-jitsu, manages to walk over into mount. And then what he does is that he switches into side control and grabs a scarf hold and tries to squeeze and crank on Green's neck. So he goes into the scarf hold, uh, hold and starts going for a chest compressor. And it's not really a submission. Like, it is a submission, but it's not a submission like an arm bar or a choke where with a choke, you're going to pass out or an arm bar, you're going to break an arm. Uh, it's a, 
all it really is is a submission that hurts really badly and it's very, very uncomfortable. And what it can do is it can make people panic tap. And especially at heavyweight where most fighters are emotionally weak, you know, as soon as things start don't start going their way, uh, you know, they start breaking down. And, you know, a lot of times you'll see, because Olnik even caught Merkel Krokop with this submission and made him tap. And Merkel Krokop is like an OG heavyweight. Uh, but it was really impressive for Maurice. Uh, you know, he just managed to outlast Olenek. He didn't tap to it. And it was really impressive because it's super uncomfortable and it really, really sucks. And especially when you have a huge ass man like Olenek, who's pretty strong, squeezing the life out of you. Uh, it's pretty impressive that he managed to outlast him. Then round two starts. And again, Olenek manages to get a takedown, but he looks pretty gassed. But he manages to get the slap, sloppy takedown against the fence and moves into Green's half guard. Green tries to grab a Kimura grip again from bottom of half guard. And he actually almost sleep, uh, sweeps Olenek, but he can't finish the sweep. And then Olenek manages to move the mount. And as Green tries to turn to his side to kind of... He turns to his side to you know be able to post up on his one arm to stand up. He leaves his top arm out and Olenek grabs the arm and ends up getting the arm bar. And it didn't look too, too tight, the arm bar, and it looked like Maurice Green was doing a good job defending it. But I think Green may have panic tapped because, you know, that's perfectly understandable when you have a 250-pound man trying to rip your arm off. Then we had the Holly Holm versus Waco Pennington 2 fight, and this fight was a fucking chore to watch. A lot of this was just Pennington... Just running it on a straight line, home circling off, and then home grabbing the clinch and running Pennington to the fence and holding her there with underhooks. A lot of the fight was also just both fighters grabbing the over under on each other and doing that dance where they keep on turning each other on the fence. See, the thing is that home is strong in the clinch, but she has very few offensive techniques to actually hurt people in the clinch. And the thing is that home is going to be able to ride that clout that she got from knocking out Ronda Rousey for her whole career. So every time a Holly home fight is announced you're either going to see her headline uh headline like a uc fight night card or you're always going to see her on the main card of a uc event and i don't know she's just not that you know that ronda rousey performance was amazing but she's just not that exciting of a fighter and doesn't do anything particularly exciting she doesn't look like a world beater anymore you know when you look super average against a fighter who like pennington there's a problem. And it was also funny hearing Joe Rogan trying to compare home to Randy Couture, saying that Couture made a career out of fighting clinch, and he was kind of getting mad at the crowd for booing, saying that this is exactly what career, uh, what Couture uh, did, and he became a heavyweight champion, and he was an exciting uh, fighter. But the difference was is that Couture could actually dirty box and hit takedowns out of the clinch, whereas Home is literally just holding Pennington against the fence, not doing anything. So not worth the watch. And if you didn't watch it, stay away from that fight. <sighs> now, finally, Conor McGregor versus Don Cerrone. Now, this is the fight where we're all waiting for. The return of Mystic Mac. And right off the bat, McGregor throws that left straight that e with everything in it. And Cerrone manages to duck underneath so uh mcgregor's left hand and they fall into the clinch and this is what has everyone talking when mcgregor starts smashing cerrone's face with these shoulder bumps where he's jumping into and he's hitting cerrone right in the, in the face with these uh, with his uh left shoulder and he actually manages to hit a knee on the clinch break and cerrone is visibly hurt now if you don't know your shoulder is a nice little piece of a hard bone and just like an elbow or a headbutt, you don't need too much distance or force to really hurt someone when you're when you're when you're hitting them 
with that shard of bone. Especially, you know, in a clinch, a lot of clinches push and pull. So especially if your opponent is pushing into you, trying to, you know, control the clinch, you can, uh, just the force of them pushing into your shoulder can cause a big impact. Now, McGregor isn't the only one who, who uses the shoulder bump. You'll actually see the Diaz brothers using the shoulder bump a lot really well when they have their opponents against the fence and the clinch and they have their hands tied up. Uh, Floyd Mayweather also used this technique from time to time when he tried to make space in the clinch and even though it's a legal it's a legal move in boxing, if you're quick enough and you're a famous boxer like Mayweather, most of the time the ref will just give you a couple warnings. The fun thing was to go on Reddit and see all the people posting other fighters who have used shoulder bumps in their fights to great effect because you know, because, you know, there are going to be people who think McGregor is the first one that used shoulder bumps effectively and he invented the shoulder bump. And there was actually one post which I really liked was Ricky Simone. Where he, was, he fucking sent Rani Yaya flying with a shoulder bump. So basically, a shoulder bump is a legal version of the headbutt. And you know, everyone and their mom is going to be throwing these things in sparring practice this week. McGregor chases uh, Cerrone down to the fence and follows up with a left high kick, which Cerrone mistakes for a left straight and gets clapped right on the side of the head. It's the classic southpaw double attack. If you're a southpaw, the preliminary motion of your left straight and your left high kick look very similar. And it keeps the opponent guessing. So does the opponent parry and try to parry the left straight and... Uh, does the opponent get his arm ready to parry in anticipation of the left straight and risk getting clapped on the head by the left high kick? Or does he keep it or does he keep his hand wide and ready to brace against the left high kick where the left straight now has an easier time of sliding right down the middle? So now McGregor has his first win in the octagon since 2016. And even though it was against an opponent that was stylistically a great matchup for McGregor, Cerrone has always had problems dealing with pressure and body shots and straight hitting and that is all McGregor's game. Nonetheless, one thing that McGregor does so well is that whenever he does have his opponent hurt, he doesn't ever rush for the finish. He always picks his shots. And if the reason this is a good thing is that if you rush to finish the opponent, there's always a chance that you may overcommit on a, a punch or a kick and you fall into the clinch with your opponent or maybe you guys fall to the ground and they grab a guard on you. And it gives them a chance to hold on to and a chance to recover. But McGregor does this amazing job where he does an awesome job of just picking his shots on the way to the finish. So he never gets dragged into the clinch or guard or anything like that. So Cerrone now has been knocked out in five of his last seven losses. And back in the day, Cerrone had an iron chin, but uh, he had an iron chin. And he even took hundreds of punches. As you, rem you could probably remember, he took hundreds of punches in that Nate Diaz fight. But it's obvious that the wear and tear is now showing. There's no shame in losing the McGregor. And I think Cerrone is basically the ultimate gatekeeper, the, gate uh, the ultimate gatekeeper that the UC has ever had. And he's going to be the litmus test for fighters at lightweight and welterweight trying to break into that contender position. For McGregor, this obviously opens up so many potential matches that would make huge money for the UFC. There's the two obvious ones, uh, the BMF title fight for with Masvidal, or, and there's also the rematch with Khabib, both which would probably be the biggest, if not some of the biggest, uh, you know, both those fights would probably be one of the biggest, if not the biggest pay-per-view by uh, fights in UFC history and if Ferguson wins the Khabib fight there's also that fight that uh, they can make Ferguson versus McGregor would be awesome uh, I remember uh, McGregor's coach John Kavanaugh saying that he would like to see Gaethje fight McGregor at 170 which would also be an awesome fight whether it happens at welterweight or lightweight that would be an awesome matchup 
some people are even some people are saying Kamaru Usman, but I don't like that fight for McGregor because it's obvious. You know, Usman fights the exact same way as Khabib, and but he's just bigger and stronger. So he would just be taking McGregor down relentlessly, and just being it'd be way easier for him to take McGregor down and hold him down there. So uh, it'd be it's going to be interesting to see what McGregor does next. So that was the UFC 246 card. Next week is UFC Fight Night 166. And we have Curtis Blades versus Junior Dos Santos. And I'm pretty surprised about that card because Curtis Blades is the current favorite on that card. But I don't think it's that easy of a win because JDS, I believe, has better striking on the fee. And he has really good takedown defense. Uh, on that card, they also have Rafael Dos Santos versus Michael Chiesa welterweight as the co-main event, which is going to be a really nice fun fight. I'll always love some RDA. Uh, there's also Angela Hill on the card fighting Hannah Cyphers. I like Angela. She's one of the better strikers in the women's division. Has a really good jab. Arnold Allen, uh, Arnold Allen is fighting Nick Lentz, which should be a really good scrap. Uh, Sarah, uh, Sarah McMahon is also on the card fighting Lena Landsberg, which should be good. Decent fight. So... Get back to me next week after those fights and we'll see how it all went down. If you're listening to this on YouTube, make sure to leave a comment and like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of those other podcasting platforms, make sure to leave a review. I would greatly appreciate it as it helps with the discoverability of the podcast, which helps me out. And if you want, follow me on all my social media outlets. There's Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can find all those platforms those links in the description below of this episode. I hope you enjoyed the weekend. I hope you enjoyed the long return, uh, the long awaited return of Mystic Mac, Conor McGregor. Peace.